My suspicion is uh, that the sharing question really pushed some buttons and unleashed a host of carols that you don't like or something like that. I'm not sure. Good to be home. I was away teaching a little bit um, over in Europe and, and back now, recovering from some illness still, but uh, good enough and happy to be with you this morning. So uh, my least favorite carol, far and away ahead of any other, is Away in a Manger. And let me, uh, some people are disappointed. <laughs> really? Boo. Yeah, yeah. That's hysterical. Let me tell you why, though. Remember, here's the line that bugs me. Uh, the, cattle are lo- the cattle are lowing the baby awake. So you can picture it, right? Jesus sleeping in this, in this feeding trough. And then the cattle start making noises and wake up Jesus. And then the next line bugs me. But little Lord Jesus... Are we supposed to be doing an Advent reading right now? No. We did the Advent reading. We're waiting for an Advent reading. Let's do it together. No, no. You do it. You do it. Yeah. I just saw Shawnee and I was like, there's a reading. You know what? Grace for all. Yet to be done. Yes. Well, I'm interested to see how you're going to take, you know, work with this. Takes a village. I would like to invite... Shawnee and Shade up here uh, to do our Advent reading so you know what the scripture's about today. Um, so I know the two of you from very different places. Shade, I know you help with children's ministry. You recently became a member. Shawnee is the founding lead pastor of our West Seattle location when it started, and now you don't do that anymore. But I'm super curious how the two of you know each other. Why don't you start? Okay. Yeah. You st- well, we met during the Race in Place book study through the Ministry of Racial Justice and Reconciliation. Yeah. As she said. <laughs> and uh, stay tuned because we are going to offer Race in Place again this uh, coming winter. And it's written by Dr. David Lee Ong, who we're going to have here in March as our annual uh, MRJR speaker, so all um, all setting the table for him. Hope to have you join us. Okay, so from Matthew two verses thirteen through fourteen and sixteen through twenty three a, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. In accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi, then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that 
Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. This is the word of the Lord. And now the passage uh, from the prophet Jeremiah that Matthew is referring us to here. Hear the word of the Lord, you nations. Proclaim it in distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather them and will watch over his flock like a shepherd. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. This is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. The word of the Lord. Thank you. That sets this up so well. Uh, the, the reason that I don't like Away in a Manger is because it portrays Jesus as a child who is completely undisruptive, if I can say that way. Like this placid child. Here, here's... Um, Here's some cattle. They wake Jesus up, but Jesus is like this. Oh, no, I would never cry because that would, that would upset my parents, and I don't want to upset my parents. And, and, and so there's this kind of sense that uh, there's a romanticizing of Jesus in that carol that this story just read utterly contradicts, right? And so what I'm going to do this morning is, is talk about the disruptive nature of Jesus and here's why. When you look at a carol and you kind of get the sense of a Jesus who, whether he's tired or hungry or he's pooped, he just remains silent. That is the non-disruptive baby. And I'm going to tell you, if you're not a parent, there is not a non-disruptive baby on the planet. It's the nature of children that they are disruptive. They're disruptive. They require sacrifice. This is what makes children the supreme picture of agape love. Like when I got married, my wife and I, we were married five years before we had kids. And during that five-year period, uh, we're both youngest. So I had zero experience babysitting. My wife had very little experience uh, babysitting. I remember going, uh, in the first year of our marriage, we remember going to a house uh, for supper. And uh, there was a couple with a new infant who was maybe seven months old or something like this. During the entire meal, the baby was screaming in this kind of decibel-piercing way. And Don and I went, we went home from that meal and we were like this, never. We will, we will never have children because we don't want to have to endure that. And then when we did have children, I will tell you, and I say this to people, uh, getting married was like a walk in the park compared to having, having kids. It was, for me, having kids revealed all my therapy issues 
you know, way more than marriage did. Like with marriage, it's like, oh, it's my best friend. I'm moving in with my best, best friend. Whatever, it's all good. Then kids come, and they're so demanding, and they don't, at least for me, they didn't give me the, the payback that I would like, right? <laughs> there is no quid pro quo with babies, right? Like, you give and give and give and give and give, and you get zero in Return maybe once in a while a smile or something like that, but it was anyway for me it was tough. I know there's maternal things that are a little different than that, but for me that was kind of the way it was. And and that that segues into this story because if all babies are disruptive, Jesus is even more disruptive than every other baby ever to live, right? From even before his birth, Jesus was disruptive. Disruption of pregnancy. Uh where the fiancé is not the father of the baby. Even if he were the father, disruptive because she's engaged, not married, right? So there's a social disruption. Disruption on the night of his birth uh, when these shepherds decide to throw a party in a manger unannounced and they come and show up and even uh, uh, there, the, uh, from there they go and there's this prophecy about Jesus uh, from Simeon, which Kindy spoke of last week here, in which parents heard Jesus would be, quote-unquote, assigned to be opposed. And in the text this morning, Joseph gets a message about an angel, uh, first time, about the untimely divine pregnancy of his wife, and now a second angel visitation says, hey, get up, leave, and go to Egypt. So, pregnancy, disruptive. Birth, disruptive. Party, the night of his birth, disruptive. Prophecy about him being assigned to be opposed. Entire disruption of Moses and, uh, uh, excuse me, Mary and Joseph's geographical choices as they spend unintended time in exile in Egypt, which is not exactly a bastion of fond memories if you're Jewish. And then on their return, they're unable to settle in their hometown with a known support network, and they have to settle in Nazareth. No crying he makes? Give me a break, right? No baby has been a bigger hassle in the history of the universe than Jesus. I mean, I'm not kidding. That's the true statement, right? Our romantic notions of Jesus, when we reduce him to this kind of placid, non-disruptive baby, are disruptive, or excuse me, dangerous in our lives. Because uh, what's happened to Jesus for 2,000 years in many times and places is Jesus has uh, uh, been transfigured by us into a harmless symbol or figurehead, right? And when that happens, we miss the crossroads where Jesus is actually calling us to uh, radical discipleship, to follow him. We miss those crossroads when Jesus is harmless. This is one of the least popular Advent stories. And what we're going to do in this story today, I want to show the reality of these crossroads that all of us have to face when we encounter not this harmless baby, but the real Jesus. And the distinction between the two paths at the crossroads. Because the reality is, you will only ever grow into the life for which God has created you uh, if you follow Jesus on this kind of narrow path that he talks about. And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to tell you this right now. The narrow path is disruptive. Will you just say that with me? The narrow path is disruptive. So you're, like, if you're going to follow Jesus, then you're going to be bummed at times. Jesus is going to ask you to go places you don't want to go. Ask you to do things with your money you don't want to do. Ask you to reorder your sexual ethic. Ask you to say things you don't want to say. This is what it means to follow Christ. So we have to see that in this text. Jesus' presence is disruptive to everyone, 
And so when we come to the crossroads, the crossroads is placed before us this morning in this story is we, all, we either follow the pathway of Herod or the pathway of Mary and Joseph, right? And the pathway of Herod is, is uh, one, it's an option of preserving status quo and the pathway of Mary and Joseph is radical discipleship. So we're going to look at that. But at the beginning here, I want to remind you of the reality that if you encounter the real Jesus, you're at a crossroads. Not once in your life when you sign a card at eight and come forward, receive Christ or something like that. That's a crossroads, but it's not the only one. Over and over and over again, God is going to ask us to follow God into places that we don't necessarily want to go, and we have to choose consistently. And we may, we'll choose wrong, but there's always a way back. Crossroads, though. We, we face many, many crossroads. So let's look at the reality of this. Remember what Jesus said, Matthew 10? He said, hey, I didn't come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. And the reality is that following me is going to set families against each other at various times. And, and, and uh, then we see examples of that all through the New Testament when Jesus asked people to follow him and then people either choose to follow or they choose not to follow. The rich young ruler. He goes, well, sad he doesn't want to follow Jesus because he's unwilling to pay the price to follow Christ in a certain way. The best example in the, in the New Testament of this kind of crossroads mentality and the need to choose is, in my opinion, this juxtaposed story of Matthew 12 and, and uh, excuse me, John 12 and Matthew, where in, in John 12, it's Palm Sunday. So remember that? Jesus kind of rolling into Jerusalem and everybody's laying down palm branches. He's at the height of his popularity. And what do people say? Remember, you guys all know the word. Jesus says, you know, Hosanna. The people say, Hosanna to Jesus. What they're saying is, save us now. We're tired of Rome. We're tired of taxation without representation. We're tired, we're tired of uh, having lost our national homeland uh, centuries ago. Save us. Save us from Rome. Save us from oppression. Save us from those guys, right? Like a week later, many of the same people who shouted, Hosanna, save now, are standing in a different setting. Jesus on trial. He's been arrested. Uh, and there's been kind of this mock trial. And now Pilate has to decide what to do with Jesus. And he says, what do you want to do with this guy, your king? And what does everyone shout? The same people who shout Hosanna shout what? Crucify him. And then Pilate says, I don't want to crucify him. Here, let me give you, uh, let me give you, uh, I'll release somebody here. You want me to release uh, Barabbas or Jesus? Barabbas, the known murderer? Give us Barabbas. What should I do with Jesus? Crucify him. And then they say this, stunningly, they say this. Pilate's like this. He washes his hands publicly. He says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. Israel then says what? Let his blood be on us and our children. We will bear the consequence of this decision entirely, but the one thing we want, the very people who shouted Hosanna, the one thing we want, kill this man. Why? He's disruptive. That's why. And he's disruptive today. So this is what I'm going to look at. Uh, I, you know, because I'm a pastor, I encounter many people who say this to me. Oh, you're a pastor. Oh, oh. Well, I used to go to church when I was a kid, you know. But I don't go anymore. But what I've never lost is my love for Jesus. Je How many hear this? I love Jesus, just can't stand institutional Christianity. Anybody hear it in the room? We all hear it. Pastors, I think, hear it more than anybody else, maybe because people want to immediately say, don't invite me to church, I'm not coming. <laughs> and so they say, oh, yeah, you know, I love Jesus. Don't get me wrong, Jesus is cool. Well, my theory is that the, I mean, there's many reasons why people 
don't get involved in institutional Christianity. That's not this sermon. But one reason that people think Jesus is cool is because the church has a long history of co-opting Jesus for everything, right? Uh, whatever it is that you do, the beauty of Christianity, this is not true, but this is the beauty of Christianity. Jesus just wants to take what you do and like, like give you some steroids to magnify and intensify it, right? So whatever, whatever you do, Jesus, your magic mushroom, man, he'll, like you'll do it better. Look at this. <laughs> Jesus, I mean, I hear it every Sunday. Just like to thank God for that miracle pass I caught, you know, in the end zone. I've never heard anyone say this, like head coach, press conference afterwards. You know, I'm praying today for what Jesus wants to teach me through our loss because I just don't know what happened, but I'm open to transformation. That never is heard, right? <laughs> like Jesus is the one who helps you win or helps you do whatever you do in karate or helps you, this is my favorite, <laughs> These are powder skis, right? And so, like, that's my Jesus, right? Double black diamond. Okay, or, really? Give it your best shot? Whatever. The point is, we live in a, there was a, like, I had one too, Jesus carrying a big rifle. I thought it was too controversial. I didn't put it up there. <laughs> but the point is, like, we just, we just love to adopt a Jesus who looks at our goals and says, man, I can really help you succeed in what you want to do. And I'm, gonna, I'm just here to tell you this morning, the good news is that's not the Christian life. The good news is that's not the Christian life. Because here's the reality check. Peter lost his job because he followed Christ. Ultimately, he was crucified upside down. Paul lost his rabbi job. Everyone who ultimately decides to follow Christ in every single case is called to make changes so dramatic that the language Jesus uses regarding the changes we're called to make is this. Hey, you've got to lose your life if you're going to find it. You want to find the life for which you're created, you're going to have to lose the life you have. So you're at crossroads. And this, by Jesus, is simply an intensification of a theme already seen throughout the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, here's Moses. Hey, I'm sending before you today life and death, blessing and cursing. What does Jesus say? You're at a cross, uh, Moses, he says, hey, you're at a crossroads, boom, choose life. Joshua 24, 15, choose life. Jeremiah 6, verse 16, this is what the Lord says, stand at the crossroads and look. You're at a crossroads, you know, at like not an intersection, but a T. There's only two options, left or right, you're at a T. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient path, where the, where's the good way, walk in it, and you'll find rest for your souls. But you, this is Jeremiah's complaint. But you said, no, we will not walk in it. The path is there. And this path, not only is this God's path, but I'm telling you, on this path is a benefit. Rest for your souls. Anybody in the room could use a little rest this morning? Just raise your hand. Anybody? I, I, I know. And yet, here's the stunner, the, the, this is the stunner to me. But you said, we won't walk in it. Thanks for the offer, Jesus. But actually, the status quo is exactly where we want to be. So let's make certain that during this Advent season, we're seeking the real Jesus because the real Jesus is disruptive. It's a harmless Jesus that's actually killing us. 
Because when we, when we strip Jesus of his power to call us to a hard path, and instead only use Jesus to bring confirmation to what we're already doing, it's, it's, it's our loss. If we worship the baby who never cries, who never disrupts, we're worshiping a figurehead with no transforming power. And then, so then I ask the question, well, why would people refuse to walk on a path that would give them a rest? Why would they do that? And to, to answer that, we're going to look at the two paths now. Here's Herod, status quo, here's Jesus, uh, uh, with Mary and Joseph, radical discipleship. So let's look at these. Herod, we usually vilify Herod, right? The, like, if you know the story, Herod's the, like this kind of vassal king of Judea, the, the southern part of uh, where the Jews are located under Roman captivity. So Matthew introduces, this is so interesting, Matthew. Matthew introduces two kings of the Jews. Herod, who Matthew calls the king of Judea, where the Jews live, and Jesus, who Matthew calls king of the Jews. So if you look at Matthew, Matthew actually sets up like a T intersection, a crossroads. There's two kings, Herod and Jesus. And uh, on a surface level, Herod's the king over like physical, visible Jewish Judea. But on an eternal level, Jesus is king of the Jews, right? And so now Herod is threatened <clears throat> by this other king. And he wants, to, he wants to do him in, and that leads to the, the story, as we'll see in a minute, of the death of, of all these children. But uh, in Matthew 2, what you see is that Herod is governing by fear, deceit, and murder. Several incidents in Herod's history, like archaeologically and historically we know this, several incidents involve Herod executing thousands of people to protect his throne. Not hundreds, thousands who he viewed as a threat to his throne. Right? His life was dominated by the obsessive defense of power and in fits of distrust and jealousy, he not only killed thousands of quote-unquote random people or strangers who he thought was a threat, he killed his brother-in-law, his mother-in-law, his wife, and in his final years, also his three oldest sons, all because of his suspicion that they were going to take the throne away from him. So like for Herod, it was like, there's one thing I want, it's this little bit of power that I have, and anything that's a threat to that power, I'm going to do away with, Right? So then Matthew tells of God's intervention. These, these uh, magicians from the east have read the stars. They've divined from the stars and writings from the Old Testament that a baby, there's been a baby born and they go and they worship the baby. And then God intervenes. An angel tells the magicians, don't go back to Herod the way he asked and tell Herod where Jesus is. Go, and so they went home a different way. And when Herod heard that, he was furious because he didn't want to go worship Jesus. He wanted to go kill Jesus. Why? Because the magicians had said, hey, we come, we, we're here because we saw a star. We came to worship the one who is what? King of the Jews. And Herod's like this. Well, you found him. I'm the king of the Jews. And the magi go, no, you're not. 
There's a baby that's been born. That's the real king. Your kingdom's fading, buddy. No! Where's the baby? I want to go, you know, worship him too. Where's the, where's, and then they go in a different way. So now Herod's plan is I'm going to kill every baby in Bethlehem and its vicinity under two years old, every male. So Joseph gets a dream, get out of town, uh, and go live in Egypt as a refugee, <laughs> an exile, an immigrant. His subservience executed the demand to kill all the babies in Bethlehem without hesitation because they're afraid of him too. <laughs> so here's my observation. Two paths. Here's the path of Herod. Herod acts solely in an effort to maintain power and position. Just like Hitler. Just like Pol Pot. Just like Assad. And because of that, it's super easy to slap a black hat on these guys and say, you know what the real problem with the world is? It's all the Herods of the world, all the Hitlers of the world, all the Maos of the world, all the Putins of the world, all the bad guys out there. Man, if there were no bad guys, all would be well. But here's the thing, no. Like I just uh, returned from Europe and I read, a, well, I always read European history when I'm over there, and I read this book called And There Was Light. It's the autobiography of a blind man in the French resistance movement. And he spends a whole chapter uh, positing on why everyone uh, became, so, why so many, so many millions, the vast overwhelming majority were complicit with Hitler and the Reich. Like, how does that happen, right? And, and he said the only reason that these, in, like we blame Hitler. He said Hitler has no power other than the power given to him. And who gives him power? Everybody. Like the multitudes, and why do people give him power? Complicit because of fear that I'm going to lose something. One of the reasons I love, you know, teaching over in Europe is because I get to meet so many people who at this stage now have grandparents who served in World War II. That's so one of my favorite questions to ask. Once I know someone well enough that I know it's a safe question to ask. It's not the first question. But I say, T talk to me about your grandparents' experience in, uh, in World War II, you know? Oh, this is, this is common. This is commonly what I hear. Oh, my dad didn't want to do anything that was asked of him. But he did it anyway. Why? Oh, well, I'm here now, aren't I? Like, I'd be dead otherwise. Like, he would have been dead. Our family would have been killed. Like, people were complicit out of, listen, fear of loss, right? Loss of position, loss of power, loss of prestige, loss of life. So the Reich, of course, loved to make examples of people who tried to do the right thing. That's why Sophie Scholl, who many of you know from being here for so long, the part of the resistance movement in Germany, that's why she was publicly executed, that's why there was a public trial for these guys, these guys in, the, in the French resistance. This guy happened to be hauled off to Buchenwald and ultimately was one of the very few who lived. And then he wrote about all this stuff. But this is what he says. Thousands have thrown their own convictions away due to fear of loss. 
I'm just going to read that again because it's so timely and important today for all of us. Thousands have thrown away their convictions due to fear and loss. Unwittingly, we pledged loyalty to Caesar, or in this case Herod, instead of Christ, because Caesar gives us a measure of wealth or position or prestige or comfort or security. And the thought of losing these things is too great. This is exactly what Paul calls in Ephesians 6, principalities and powers. In other words, uh, here's the deal. We live in a culture where there's kind of a web of, um, though it's overused in the moment and I don't intend to be political, it's just the appropriate statement. There's a web of quid pro quo, right? You, look, you be the consummate consumer and I'll give you upward mobility, right? You be the loyal soldier and I'll give you voting rights. You be, you be the, con- the consumer, the materialist, the nationalist. Like, y- you worship our idols, and we'll give you stuff. That's the Pax Romana. That's the peace of Rome. Like, if you, all you have to do is tow the party line. And if, you, if all of us tow the party line, the GDP keeps going up, the stock market keeps going up, everybody's happy, all is good. Here's the problem. Some of you are working at companies and it's contradicting your conscience. And, and, and you, ought, you ought to quit, but maybe you're, you're not, it's not even on your radar because hello, mortgage, kids, college. So we live in a time you know, we buy the cheapest products for savings for ourselves and so doing, sometimes we're furthering slave labor, environmental dis- destruction, or let's make it even more personal. I know from the Holy Spirit and conviction, I need to have a hard conversation with my spouse. I need to confess something and I don't want to do it because it's, look, as soon as I drop that in the water that is my placid yet boring marriage, I risk, you know, conflict and and, like, truth-telling is hard. So I, I keep my job. I keep my mouth shut. I pay my taxes. I, 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 like, I, I, I'm part of the big machine. It's all good. Except here's the problem. It's not all good. Because in so doing, if when we stand at a crossroads, we always turn towards Caesar every time, if we do that, not only are we part of the problem, but we're missing the life for which we're created. After he was arrested in Argentina, Adolf Eichmann, who worked for Hitler, this is what he said in his confession letter. He said, guilty? No, I'm not guilty. Look, you need to draw a line between the leaders responsible and the people like me who were forced to serve as instruments in the hand of the leader. I'm not a responsible leader. I don't feel myself guilty at all. I was just obeying orders. Wow. He's on trial in Nuremberg, and the famous, uh, now famous philosopher, Hannah Arendt, described Eichmann as this kind of mild-mannered guy who didn't ask philosophical questions. He just did what was asked of him. That's all he did was what was asked of him, right? And so he, like, very efficiently built timetables, calculated travel costs. How can we move the most Jews in the cheapest way possible to camps where they can be incinerated? This is what she calls, quote-unquote, the banality of evil. Let me tell you how C.S. Lewis describes this. The greatest evils of our day are not now done in those sordid dens of crimes that Dickens loved to talk about. No, the greatest evils are not even done in concentration camps or labor camps. In those we see the final result, but 
Evil is conceived and ordered and moved and seconded and carried and minuted in clean, carpeted, warm, well-lit offices by quiet men with white collars, cut fingernails, smooth-shaven cheeks who will never raise their voice. Boom. That's evil. And, and if you're like this, uh, yeah, I don't, hey, Richard, don't confuse me. Like I got a job and I just want to get on with my life. I'm not trying to confuse you. Maybe the Holy Spirit is trying to confuse you. And I, but what I'm trying to say is if you, if you think there are no crossroads on a pretty regular basis, then you're living in an illusion. And if for you there are no crossroads, it's because you've adopted the Jesus who no crying he makes. He'll never bug you. But that's not the real Jesus. So Herod represents a fear of losing status quo. And so, like, will I ever be Herod and murder thousands? I don't think so. But that doesn't dismiss me from the real possibility that I can be complicit with Herod's reign or Caesar's reign or the reign of materialism or the reign of consumerism or the reign of nationalism. The rich young ruler basically makes the same choice as Herod. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't kill thousands. In fact, he said, hey, Jesus, I've kept the law. It's for my youth. And Jesus like this, yeah, you kept all the law but one thing. There's one thing you haven't done. You're hanging on to your money, and because you're hanging on to your money, you're going to miss the life for which I have, uh, the life for which you're created. Uh, look, sell everything, give it to the poor, come follow me. And then what does it say? Thanks, nope. I prefer status quo. So I'm on, I, now I'm on Herod's road, even though I never killed anyone. <laughs> Why? Because the one thing that Jesus wants you to do, you say no. Could be sex. Could be money, could be career, could be geography, could be vocation, could be confession, could be confrontation. 99% of the pastors in Germany, none of whom were Hitler, <laughs> chose to preserve status quo because they had privilege, they had power, they had prestige. So they chose that over faithfulness. And in Austria, so that it, the movie that's out or coming out called The Hidden Life is right here about this. A guy who is in Austria gets married and then has to make a choice. Am I going to be complicit with this, with this reign of evil or am I going to follow Jesus? And when he decides to follow Jesus, the hassle doesn't come from Hitler only, though it does come there. He's executed, spoiler alert. But that the hassle comes from the church, from his family, who are like this. You're doing the wrong thing, buddy. Why? Because you're upset. Listen, you're upsetting the status quo. Yeah, that's what Jesus does, actually. So unless I live my life with open hands, I'm going to miss God's best. We're not talking in this sermon about imposed suffering, like an unwanted illness. <laughs> that's a real thing. What we're talking about here are crossroads where you have freedom to choose. I can begin to give or I can close my fist. I can begin to serve or I can stay home and watch TV. I can go to my wife and uh, confess the hidden thing or I can keep quiet. I can go to my friend and have the hard conversation or I can make false peace. I can 
I can pray about my job and quit because the Holy Spirit is calling me to quit. Or I can pray about my job and stay because the Holy Spirit is calling me to stay. But I'm at a crossroads. And if in my paradigm, the preservation of either prestige or power or pleasure is the, is the non-negotiable entity to which I cling, that's idolatry. And then I'll always choose Caesar, always, at that one point. Sure, I can, I can come here and sing. Singing's free. Listening's free. Trees are expensive, but easy to find, right? Like, I, I, I can do Christmas without any disruption. But, but if that's the way it is, then I haven't met Jesus. That's the challenge of it, right? One writer said, uh, in the wake of the Nuremberg trials, turns out there's a little bit of Eichmann in all of us. Like all, it's easy to just stay the course that is my present life rather than allow the disruption that will lead to transformation, that will lead to the life for which I'm created. It's very, I mean, that's the, called the wide road. All you got to do to choose the wide road is nothing. It's the default. So that's, that's the Herod choice. Status quo. The Mary choice, a uh, little bit different, and you know it, a little bit briefer, so we'll go there. Like imagine if for Joseph, uh, never going to Egypt had been a thing. Yeah, I'll live everywhere in the world, but not Egypt. Well, that would be a problem in this narrative. He wouldn't have gone. Or imagine if Joseph was like this. Yeah, uh, Mr. Angel, thanks for that message, but you know, I have Christian values, and so to marry a pregnant woman, it's, nah, I'm not going to do that. Then this whole story evaporates. Uh, imagine how these guys felt on that night when uh, Simeon holds, like Simba, he holds Jesus up, and he says, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. A sign to be opposed. Then he looks at Mary and he says, and a sword will pierce your own heart because of this baby. Merry Christmas. <laughs> and then the wise men visit and they're out. Immigrants. Po political asylum. In an unfriendly country. Romantics are often unwilling to unwrap the cultural veneer of Christmas. Like we, what we love about Christmas are the trees and the lights and the candles and the um, cocoa or just coming back from Europe, the, the warm hot wine, you know, the advent markets and all that. We love that. It's all good, 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 good. But that's not the point. The point is, <laughs> ironically, we're celebrating the intrusion of the most disruptive force in the history of Humanity. That's what we're celebrating. Someone who comes in and, when they, and, and who, when, when Jesus really invades my life, it, it's, it's going to change me. I remember uh, Donna was pregnant and uh, we were offered a job in Los Angeles for ministry would have been a high-paying job. It was, it was served up on a platter. We were praying about it at the time. We, we knew it wasn't the right thing to do, but we didn't want to say it 
because we didn't, uh, I didn't have anything else. And Donna's, you know, grown first baby and what are we going to do? And my uncle, uh, who was a pastor, don't politicize this, though it's a political story. He just, in Fresno, my Presbyterian pastor uncle protested at a nuclear rally and was arrested. This, I mean, are you kidding me? This guy is straight up red politically and straight up. My, this is my uncle, right? He's not a, he wasn't a draft dodger, you know. I mean, no. Like, this is just a, this guy is Tom, right? He's just right on straight. And then I, I remember, man, if he did that, and I know I'm supposed to say no, I'll say no. And I said no. And then very quickly, um, instead of being in ministry, I'm cleaning carpets in Los Angeles, which was the best ministry education I had. Different story for another time. Before eventually moving to Friday Harbor and taking a part-time position for half the pay with a brand new baby. I don't say that, to, it's not a brag or anything like that. I'm just, this is one example of 50 in our lives where we've had to go, this is a crossroads here. And we gotta do the, we gotta do the right thing or preserve what we have. And maybe we gotta speak to you this morning about a crossroads. Maybe there's a hard conversation you need to have. Maybe you need to open your hands and, and God's been speaking to you about giving or giving more. Maybe God's been speaking to you about serving. Maybe God has been speaking to you about your job or uh, a geographical relocation. Or maybe you just moved here and you're struggling with it. I'm just going to encourage you this morning to, in, in our closing, as we sing, to pray, God, would you sh- give me kind of eyes and ears to both see and hear when I'm at a crossroads? And then give me the grace to choose. Because I want to follow Jesus because therein is life and rest and hope and the life for which we're created. But I'll tell you, the wide road, status quo. And all you got to do to go there is nothing. So Nick's going to come lead us. We're going we're gonna to sing. If you want to use a prayer book this morning, always for anything, or our prayer team members will be here. But you could this morning declare by way of testimony, I will choose Christ today by, and then what's the next step God is speaking to you about that is on this narrow road? I will choose Christ today by giving. I will choose Christ by, by serving, by reconciling a broken relationship, by forgiving someone, by naming my addiction. I have a step to take on the narrow road. What is it? Well, whatever it is, therein is life. Choose life. Father, meet us now. Thank you for this time. Give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to us. We want to follow you and make the turn toward you every time rather than choosing status quo. So would you speak to us even this morning, and we'll thank you for the fruit of it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.